Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Now, uh, by way of introduction, as you probably know, we humans shared a common ancestor with the orangutan about 13 million years ago, with the gorilla about 8 million years ago, with the chimpanzee and bonobo about 6 million years ago, and with the our closest extinct evolutionary cousin, the Neanderthal, about half a million years ago. And you'll be hearing more about a lot of this along the way. Now, uh, I realize this is an audience that ranges all the way from really hardcore geneticists that know a lot more than I do, all the way to educated lay people who are interested in the topic. And so, therefore, I hope the experts will bear with me while I give a sort of a general, very brief introduction to genetics. Uh, one of the problems we face in Carta is that we have so many specialties and so many complexities and so much jargon, and that uh, even amongst ourselves we have trouble keeping up with all the, all the jargon. So I'm going to just give a very brief introduction and apologies to anyone who feels that it's too simplistic. As you know, there's DNA in the cell, both in the mitochondria and the nucleus. We're mainly talking about the nucleus today. Chromosomes, and where the DNA is packaged up in, by histones. And if you look at the level of uh, molecular detail, you can see the double helix with these base pairs that keep the DNA together and which uh, constitute the genetic code. And you hear a phrase like five prime to three prime, and that really tells you which strand and which direction you're running in. Now, there is this reductionist view of biology that DNA makes RNA makes protein, and there's a tendency to therefore think that cells, tissues, and organisms emanate from this simple paradigm. But that's like saying that if you have Betty Crocker's cookbook, you have a meal like that. It's a lot of other things that happen along the way, obviously. So a more complete view of biology would be that you also need lipids, you need glycans, you need these to come together in glycoproteins, glycans, glycolipids, cells, matrices, tissues, and organisms. Of course, things feed back to DNA and RNA, but don't forget the microbes and parasites, the physical environment, the diet, and in the case of species like humans, the cultural environment. So this is a more complete view of biology. But today we are going to be a bit reductionist. We are going to focus mostly on DNA, RNA, and proteins, but keep the bigger picture in mind and occasionally refer to the bigger picture. As you know, uh, you, each of you have chromosomes derived from your, from your parents, and if you're male, you have a y, a y instead of two Xs. There's a mitochondrial DNA, which uh, is in all cells. And during sexual reproduction, you get uniparental clonal inheritance of Y and mitochondrial DNA, and recombination of other chromosomes can take place. So some very basic terminology, a locus on a chromosome in a genome. The genome would be all of the sequence in, in, your, uh, in your genome. So you can have a genetic locus, which can, they can have multiple loci, you'll hear this term. You can have alleles of the same gene in which you have alternate forms found in the same place in the same chromosome. You can have haplotypes, which are combinations of alleles at multiple loci that are transmitted together on the same chromosome. And from a genetic locus, very often you'll find a gene, but the gene is broken up into these exons in terms of the coding region for amino acids, and you'll hear about enhancers and promoters that affect the gene. And you translate this DNA into RNA in a primary transcript, but then you have to take this messenger RNA, and you'll hear about the five prime untranslated region and the three prime untranslated region at either end of these genes. And this messenger RNA has to undergo splicing to develop a process transcript and give you a protein. 
But the big new elephant in the room over the last few years is the fact that a lot of our RNAs are not coding and are doing a lot of very interesting things, very important biologically, you'll hear about that. So with that very brief overview, obviously I've left out a lot of terminology, but just a few, few words to keep us uh, in thinking along the lines of uh, these things. We're going to have the genetics of humanness, and one of the things Elaine and I decided is to make the program sort of in this direction generally. We're starting at the big picture level with entire genomes, and then we'll work our way through segments of genomes, and then uh, you start hearing more about RNA and accelerated regions, genome, gene regulation, networks, and eventually drill down to a few examples of a single couple of single genes. And not shown in this is that the, in the final closing remarks, Pascal Gagneau will uh, put things a little bit into perspective by looking at the, at the even bigger picture. The next speaker is Evan Eichliff from the University of Washington, speaking about segmental duplications and deletions. So thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks, Ajit and, and uh, Elaine, for organizing such an interesting and I think still topical uh, area of discussion. Probably will be topical for the next 50 years. But uh, my perspective on this has really been from a slightly different uh, point of view. Well, we've talked a lot, and we'll hear more about single nucleotide variation. Roughly the last 15 years, my lab has been interested in larger forms of genetic variation, deletions, duplications, and inversions, and particularly down to the level of about one kilobase in size. And more recently, with the advent of new technologies, we've been able to push this down to even further, down to about 50 base pairs in terms of its size. My initial uh, interest and, I guess, passion uh, into this field comes from really the study of historical variation, historical copy number changes, particularly duplications. And it comes from really two perspectives. And uh, I'm summarizing the work of about 60 years or 70 years of others here, but I think they really summarize why I think duplications are so powerful in terms of evolutionary process. The first has to do with functional import. When you duplicate sequences and make extra copies of them, by definition, you free that sequence from evolutionary constraint. So if there's genes within those areas, they can actually evolve. Potentially new functions can evolve from that. And in fact, duplication is the primary force by which new genes evolve within any species. Whether you're a cricket, a snail, or a human, this is the primary mechanism. The second is really with respect to the structure of the genome. When you create additional copies of duplicated sequences, you now predispose that genome and that area of the genome more precisely to additional rounds of deletion and duplication. This was recognized by guys like H.J. Muller and Sturtevant long before we even knew what DNA was. They observed the bar locus in Drosophila, for example, as being a site of genetic instability that was related to duplication. So throughout this talk, I'm going to touch on both of these, both the role of duplicated sequence, particularly within great apes and humans, in terms of the emergence of new genes, and as also as roles and their role in terms of genetic instability. So a little bit of background. The term I will use is, and unfortunately the title of the talk was segmental duplications. So segmental duplications are nothing more than recent duplicated sequences defined at the genomic level as being pieces of DNA greater than a kilobase in size and with greater than 90% sequence identity. And for the purpose of this talk, what you need to understand is that there are differences in terms of the distribution of these sequences. So sometimes they can be distributed within a chromosome or they could be distributed between different chromosomes, in which case we refer to them as intra versus inter-chromosomal duplications. And the other important piece of information is that they can be different in terms of their configuration. They can be separated from their ancestral sequence 
by large distances, in which case we call that interspersed, or they can be side by side, in which case we call that tandem. All right, so that's the background. So what does the human genome look like with respect to this property? This is a slide that I often show, but I think it actually summarizes quite nicely the pattern of large segmental duplications within our genome. I'm looking here at only the largest, so greater than 20,000 base pairs, and the most identical, so greater than 95% sequence identical. So these are all evolutionarily quite young. And every little line that you see here represents essentially a duplicated sequence that's duplicated intrachromosomally. So the blue represent intrachromosomal duplications. So two things I want you to get from this. The first is, not every chromosome has been treated the same with respect to duplications. Look at chromosome 7, chromosome 16, 17. They've been bombarded by a large fraction of duplications, while other chromosomes have been you know, essentially quiet. The other thing which you maybe can't get from this is that essentially a large fraction of the duplications are interspersed. That is to say, they're not side by side with their ancestral sequences, but they're spread long distances from their kind of ancestral homeland. Now, I'm going to show you the interchromosomal pattern on top of this. And this is the pattern when you add the, the exchange of information between different chromosomes that has occurred historically. This might look like complete chaos, but I'll assure you it's not. There is actually an organization to this. But you'll see that specifically biases near centromeres, represented here by purple, or near the ends of the chromosomes, are particularly prone to this process. So how does this compare to other organisms? So this is probably the best sequenced genome other than human that's available, and that's the mouse genome, and more specifically, a specific strain that we call C57 black 6. And this is the pattern for duplications, recent duplications, at the exact same sequence identity and exact same size. So what's not impressive is the difference in terms of proportion. Mouse genome is about the same proportion of recent duplications, although the sequences are completely different because they're all evolutionary, evolutionarily quite young. But one thing you should see from this is that the pattern is very different from human. You see essentially very few interchromosomal duplications, but more importantly, you see that essentially the duplications that are intrachromosomal, shown here in blue, are right on top of one another. So in the mouse, most of the duplications that have evolved have evolved to be in tandem, or very near to be in tandem. While in humans and in great apes, the vast majority of the duplications are essentially interspersed. So which is the mammalian archetype? So I won't show you the data, but we've had the opportunity to look at the genomes of elephants, dogs, rats, platypus, and other marsupials, for example. And I can tell you that an elephant's genome architecture with respect to duplications looks a lot more like a mouse than it does a human or a great ape. So this, in this regard, humans and great apes seem to be the odd man out, so to speak, or the odd hominids out with respect to duplication architecture. So what about the duplication architecture in humans and great apes? Well, in terms of the timing of these events, we've had the opportunity to look at chimpanzee, orangutan, um, and actually other species. More recently, we've sequenced our own gorilla genome to actually get an estimate on, on, on the timing of the different duplications. And this Venn diagram just simply shows you the most recent duplications and how they relate to one another in terms of whether they're shared, i.e. they intersect between a human and a chimp, or if they're specific to one lineage versus another. So this is the total number of millions of base pairs that are involved. So two things that you can get from this, just looking at this map of duplications, which is going back to about 25 million years ago, you can see that the orangutan circle is significantly smaller than that of human or chimp. And this is actually something that we've been able to validate experimentally on a number of different genome assemblies. So less duplication in the orangutan lineage compared to chimp or human. The other thing that you'll see is that the size of the circle between human and chimp that's shared is actually quite large. And in fact, if you go ahead and you try to estimate how many 
megabases have been added by duplication to the hominid lineage of evolution. This is the kind of tree that we get. Now we've added gorilla in addition to and macaque on this. The top line refers to the absolute number, of the, big, the big number here is the absolute number of mega millions of base pairs that have been added. And a smaller number refers to the number of millions of base pairs added per million years. And so the one thing I want you to see from this is in particular right here. Right around the time of the separation, or just before the timing of separation of human, chimp, and gorilla, and we think shortly thereafter, there was a burst of duplication activity. So we have on the order of three times the number of megabases that were duplicated in this ancestral branch before the separation of chimp, gorilla, and human. This is interesting, because if you look at you know, texts that have been written for the last uh, 20 years on this subject, most people have, been, have had this paradox, is why is there so few genetic changes over the millions of years that exist between humans and chimps and gorillas? And that is because most of those studies have been done already on single base pair changes and small insertion deletions. In terms of duplication, it appears we have an episodic burst of activity at a critical time, I would argue, during evolution. So another piece of information I want to share with you, and it's actually kind of a model at this point, is how these duplications have grown in complexity, specifically within the great ape human lineage. And I'm not going to share you with all the data underlying this, but essentially reconstructing the evolutionary history of these duplications suggests that they have grown in series. So particular sequences, which we have referred to often as core duplications or core duplicons, have actually moved and jumped to a new location, duplicating a copy of the old and a new place. And then as this has jumped again in subsequent rounds of duplication, it has actually picked up the flanking sequence around it and created an, a now a larger, more complex pattern of duplication. This is subsequently duplicated again, now picking up unique sequences at the flank once again. And so evolutionarily, when you look at these architectures, you'll know a couple of features. Number one, they're not pure, they're not just not one sequence, but they're actually mosaics of different pieces of DNA that have been stitched together. And the second you'll see is that as you get toward the edge, the edges become much younger than the center portion, which is the oldest, which is the core. And there's also exchanges of information that have gone on between these, creating a very complex architecture that exists in our species compared to other primates. So to give you kind of an idea of how complex this can get, this is chromosome 16, showing you a schematic of about 15 locations that are all about 15 million years old or younger in terms of their origin. So if I could go back to my time machine, none of these locations would exist with this kind of complexity. So each little line here, each little, each little color bar represents a different piece of DNA that has been duplicated to this specific location, but it's occurred in series. If you go back and you look at the, this chromosome, chromosome 16, and compare it to, let's say, a baboon or a macaque or any other old world monkey species, what you find is that all of these pieces of DNA exist as a single copy in this particular genome. So if this represents the archetype of humans and great apes, we went from this architecture to this architecture in a span of about 25 million years or less. So adding essentially about 10% additional euchromatin or additional chromosome sequence to chromosome 16 in a very short period of evolutionary time. Really unprecedented from most, most studies of evolution. Similarly, if we look at our cousins, the orangutan, we can see similar patterns where duplications have burst onto the scene. Not as, not as complex nor as prolific as what we've seen. But you'll notice that all of these sequence colors here are different with respect to what we see in human, except for the one, which is the core sequence, which has actually jumped to completely independent locations on different chromosomes uh, during the course of evolution. 
All right, so why do I show you all this? Well, this architecture, which is having all these duplications that are spread out, that are large and highly identical, creates problems for our genome. And the reason it creates problems is exactly what uh, Ed has already mentioned, is meiosis is fundamental to essentially uh, the recombination process that leads to our chromosomes being different. And the way that that process works, how it knows to find a mom and a dad's chromosome, is by sequence homology. But when you have big chunks of sequence that are virtually identical, you can actually trick that recombination process. So you initiate a recombination of where you shouldn't. And so here are two chromosomes of four that are misaligning during meiosis. And now this big chunk of duplication that's actually separating at two different locations misaligns during meiosis. And now you create gametes that have additional copies of that duplicated sequence or have lost copies of that duplicated sequence. But more importantly, because they're interspersed, everything that's bracketed by these duplications gets taken along for the ride. And now you have gametes that now have additional copies of genes A, B, and C in addition to duplication or have lost. So this creates huge amount of genetic diversity in our population. And as a result, it also creates disease. Because when you actually sometimes remove entire swaths of five million base pairs that contain six genes, and now you only have one copy, it's not sufficient to actually properly develop. And so years ago, we identified these 130 regions. And we systematically have shown by studies of human disease that about 45 of them are important in terms of causing sporadic mutations as well as inherited mutations as a result of this process. And these affect diseases such as autism, intellectual disability, developmental delay, epilepsy, and schizophrenia. So our genome is predisposed to these diseases because of our architecture, uh, essentially, that has evolved. And these are just a few of the microdeletions of the 45 that we've characterized. This is an example of a, a, a very common, it's the second most common cause, genetic thought of autism. Here's an a, a autism spectrum disorder, a deletion of this particular segment. Here's another segment on chromosome 15, which is unstable, associated with schizophrenia as well as epilepsy in the general population, probably one of the most common causes of general, generalized epilepsy in the human species. So this is just going back to that chromosome 16 view. This is the beautiful, complicated architecture that has evolved on those chromosomes. And this is just to show you that rearrangements between these big blocks result in this form of mental retardation, schizophrenia, Rearrangements between blocks 9 and 10 result in syndromic uh, intellectual disability. And this is the, one of the most common causes of autism I already mentioned. It's rearrangements between blocks 12 and 13. So all of this architecture has evolved specifically on our species. So the question that some of you might be asking, I know we've asked this for the last 10 years, is essentially why? Why would we possibly have this type of architecture if it's actually predisposing our population to increased burden and actually increasing our susceptibility to diseases such as autism, schizophrenia, and intellectual disability. And the answer, I think, partly lies in this, is that in these core sequences, it's not just generic sequence, but embedded therein are rapidly evolving genes and gene families. And so our group, along with about four other groups, has characterized these gene families over the last few years. And these are just a subset of the genes. There's about six core duplicons that have really carried very rapidly evolving gene families. And so shown here are some of the genes. This is the first one that we published in 2001. This is a gene that shows extreme positive selection. It actually evolves about 50 times faster than a gene under purifying selection. That is to say, the additional duplicate copies that are being created are extremely diverse from the kind of the ancestral sequence from which they came. 
Here's another gene. This is a fusion gene called TRAY2. It's actually been a marker for bladder cancer for some years. But interestingly, it's thought that it regulates uh, uh, cellular growth, specifically in rapidly dividing cells. Here's another gene described by Pierre Bork. It's a RANGP2 binding protein. Ancestral progenitor is a nuclear pore. And this one described by Jim Sakella in 2006 is a gene that's been loosely described as uh, essentially a neuro-oncogene expressed in neurons as well as in, again, rapidly dividing, particularly uh, cancer cells. What's cool about these genes is that they have no orthologs, really clear orthologs in the mouse. If you find them, they often don't produce a transcript that's going to be functional. They have multiple copies in chimpanzee and human. They have dramatic changes in their expression profile. So if you go back to an old world monkey species, you'll see them expressed in totally different tissues. And about half of these are showing extreme signals of positive selection. But none of these have been characterized in terms of their phenotype. So there's a big question mark for the function of these genes, largely because they're repetitive in nature. And most of the methods that we've developed are designed essentially to characterize unique sequence and unique genes. So this is just to show you an example of one of these. This is one that we've worked on for the last 10 years. This is a gene called nuclear pore interacting protein. Humans have 20 copies, and some humans have 15. Chimps have 30 copies, but about a third of them are completely different in terms of their location. And what we've been able to do is take the copy that was, let's say, a single copy in a baboon, put them back into a mouse in the back, in making a transgenic, do the same with human copies. And what we found, this is unpublished, but what we found is essentially that every copy that we've taken back into a mouse from the human shows expression patterns that are very specific within specific cells. So what I'm showing you is a part of the human brain. This is the dentate gyrus. And this is a little, the, the, the staining that you see here is RNA staining. And what we can see is there's a high level of expression of this particular gene family in the neurons, but more importantly, in areas of active neurogenesis. So dentate gyrus, the cerebellar granular layer of the human brain. If we go back and we do the same experiment with a baboon, there's no expression, essentially zero expression in either of these two specific areas. So stay tuned. I think these genes are going to be much more important in terms of understanding human function. The other thing that we can do now, and this is in part because we actually have so many human genomes to compare, we can start asking specific questions, not about shared duplications between human, chimpanzee, and gorilla that may be different in terms of copy, but start asking questions about what genes are actually duplicated in the human lineage. And of those that are duplicated specifically in the human lineages, which of them have become fixed? And so I'm showing you here data from a, a paper we published at the end of last year, where this is analyzing 155 human genomes for copy number of these duplicated genes. And this is the copy of, that, of a given gene shown in Asian populations, European, African, as defined by the genomes that were analyzed in that study. Compared to, in gray, essentially chimpanzee, orangutan, and gorilla, we also had the ability to analyze the Neanderthal, as an example shown here in brown. But the important point I want to make here is because we've now analyzed 155 human genomes, we can clearly say that these specific genes are duplicated and duplicated only in our lineage. And so these are some of the genes that pop up. I don't expect you to be able to read many of these, but just to give you a kind of a flavor of this, this is a gene called GTF2IRD2. The lesions of this gene have been thought to be important in terms of visual spatial uh, processing uh, in the brain. Uh, this gene, GPRIN2, is a gene important in terms of glutamate-induced neurite growth in the brain. Chernofam7A is a nicotinamide acetylcholine receptor fusion gene that's specifically duplicated in human. Hyden is important in terms of fluid uh, transport across the brain. So it's actually a structural protein. And mutations in this right result in uh, essentially hydrocephalus. 
And SMN, for example, is a gene important in terms of motor neuron maturation. And so the important point here, and this is actually statistical by pretty much any analysis that you look at, the types of genes that we see specifically duplicated in the human lineage are disproportionately important in terms of brain development. And this is my favorite, my last slide example. It turns out we have an expert in the audience on this specific gene, and actually here at San Diego, a gene known as SIRGAP2. SIRGAP2 is a slit row GTPase. It's a gene, gene, these genes have been known to be important in terms of brain development in every mammal for, 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 for many years. But SIRGAP2 functions primarily to control migration of neurons and dendrite for, formation in the cor cortex. Okay? And so it's shown here is a little pictorial taken from uh, Frank Pullo's paper or editorial of it that simply shows that the actual expression level of this particular gene is critical for telling how far a neuron migrates from the ventricular zone up to the cortical plate. So it's kind of a Goldilocks thing got to be just not too much, not too little, and you, you go to the right spot and you begin to actually uh, form dendrites. So here's the cool part. Turns out that there's a gene, this particular gene is an example of one that's been duplicated specifically in the human lineage. We've now estimated that it's two to three million years old. The duplications are large. They're not represented in the human genome assembly. That's because they're large and highly identical. So if you look at the human genome assembly, you wouldn't see these duplicate copies. And what's interesting about these genes, these duplicate copies, is that they're expressed and they're expressed in fetal development. And some data that's emerging may suggest that these could be important in terms of acting as like antagonists against SIRGAP2, helping to more finely regulate when and where SIRGAP actually exerts, exerts its function. So an antagonist of the parental copy. So in summary, I've talked about a unique feature of the human genome architecture, or human grade ape genome architecture, which is this interspersion of duplications. I talked about how, how that architecture is kind of bad karma for us predisposing our genome to really a burden of large copy number variation associated with neurologic and neurobehavioral and neurocognitive disease. I've talked about how that architecture has evolved recently with a focal point on specific segments of DNA that have kind of marched across chromosomes creating this architecture. And I've talked about how those pieces of DNA that are so prolific are associated with essentially genes of unknown function, but genes in which I think are tantalizing in terms of their signatures of selection and evolution and more, maybe more interestingly, even the fact that they're flanked by human-specific genes, which we know are disproportionately involved in brain function. So with that, I will end. I just want to acknowledge uh, these two folks here, Thomas Marquez and Zoshi Jang, and I actually should also acknowledge Matt Johnson, and whose work I largely presented today. And then obviously great collaborators clinically, and more importantly, I guess I should emphasize the fact that the, our ability to actually study these difficult regions of the genome requires that we actually have genome centers that are still dedicated to excellence in terms of the quality of the sequence that's being generated. And despite the fanfare of next generation sequencing saying that we can sequence thousands of genomes, we haven't still sequenced the first human genome completely yet to understand the true diversity and complexity of our species. Thanks. So it's a pleasure to welcome Katie Pollard uh, from UC San Francisco to the podium. Her topic is human accelerated regions in the genome. Great. So thanks, Elaine um, and Najib, for the invitation. It's great to be here. A really exciting first part of the session. And I, if I understand right, my job is to move us from the genomes view into the gene view. And I'm certainly going to start with genomes and, and hopefully uh, provide a little bit of a transition into a more focused look at specific uh, genes and parts of the genome that have played roles in human evolution. 
So this question we're thinking about today, about what makes us human, um, isn't a new one. Humans have been comparing ourselves to other animals, especially our closest living relatives for eons, most likely. And many of us in this room belong to disciplines um, that arose out of this intellectual curiosity. In anthropology, for example, approaches focus on fossils, archaeology, behavior, and biology of living primates, um, including ourselves. But the researchers in the symposium today are actually in a relatively new field compared to these approaches. We address similar questions, but we're using DNA sequence data, as we've heard already in this session, first session today. And the way that my lab specifically explores the genetic basis for humanness is that we want to try to pinpoint the parts of the human genome that are most different, our DNA that's most different between humans and chimps or other primates, and then to try to link these to human-specific biology. So this is a question you're hearing coming up over and over again in the talks today. So as we've heard, many of our traits are shared. Humans really are just great apes. Um, and, but there are some ways that um, we're different. And these span all aspects of our biology, from disease susceptibility, which I'm particularly interested in, to behavior and diet. I was part of the international consortium that performed the initial sequencing and analysis of the chimpanzee genome, and this seems like a long time ago now, back in 2005. Um, we now have genomes of many other um, vertebrates, and including a number of primates, and as we've heard today, very excitingly, some, even some extinct primates. Neanderthals, as we heard, um, the Denisovans are our closest relatives, as far as we know, that have ever lived. Um, chimpanzees have the role of being our closest living relative um, that hasn't gone extinct. And this is important for a couple reasons. One is that we can get high-quality DNA samples. We don't have to worry about these issues of contamination um, and of DNA degradation. But really, much more importantly than that is that we can observe chimpanzees, living chimpanzees today. So we can, in trying to make the link from the genome to the traits that we're interested in, we actually have something we can observe. We can observe the soft tissues. We can observe things like behavior. Um, and so both um, these extinct hominids that are very closely related to us and our closest living relative, the chimp, play very important roles in asking what makes us human from a genetic perspective, and they're very complementary. So interestingly, um, the ch getting back to the Chimp Genome Project, consistent with the fact that most of our biology really isn't that different from a chimp or a gorilla or a orangutan, as I'm sure many of you have heard, our DNA sequence is not that different. So we differ about one in every hundred base pairs, one in every hundred letters in our genome from the chimp genome. And if we focus on the parts of our genome, and this is only about 2%, a little less than 2% of our genome, the parts that encode proteins, that there are even fewer differences than that. So our proteins, it turns out, are nearly identical. And there are some proteins that are very different, and there's some pretty exciting stories about those that we're going to hear about the rest of this afternoon. But what came to me from looking at the chimpanzee genome and from understanding the findings of the chimpanzee genome project was that we need to look beyond the proteins if we want to understand the genetic basis for humanness. The story isn't going to only be there. So uh, the other thing that we've um, heard about from Evan and a little bit from Elaine today is that there are these structural variations, parts of our genome where we have a sequence and chimp doesn't have it at all, or we have multiple copies with slight variations in them and chimp has only one or two copies. Um, and these, some of these are unique to us, and some are unique to chimpanzees, since our common ancestor 
It turns out that on a base pair by base pair level, these actually make up more of the difference between a human and chimp. So if you've heard that figure cited that we're 99% identical to a chimpanzee, those are single letters of DNA where you're looking at the corresponding letter between human and chimp. You're sure you're looking at the same place in the genome, and there's been a change. And it's important to remember that these structural variations, although not as talked about as much, um, not as well understood, not as easily mathematically modeled, um, also actually play a, a, a very important role as well. So I'm going to touch on both of those a little bit today. Focus a little bit more on substitutions because we have nice mathematical and probabilistic models for understanding them. But I think these structural variations are exceedingly important and um, are increasingly coming to light. So both of types of differences between humans and chimps or humans and other non-human um, primates are important. And as I mentioned, they affect both the protein coding sequences in our genome and the non-coding parts of our genome. And in fact, most of the chimp-human differences aren't in proteins. They're going to be in these parts of the genome that used to be called junk DNA. And it turns out that some of it is junk um, in the sense that it's not doing a lot to help us and our biology along, but much of it is doing important things. And so slowly, um, science is starting to understand this non-coding or dark matter part of our genome that used to be called junk. Um, and one of the important things that the non-coding genome does is to uh, control uh, expression of nearby genes. So they're things called regulatory elements, and they can turn nearby genes on and off. You can think of the genes like the building blocks or the bricks, and then these are the ways that you can put them together. So chimps and humans have basically the same building blocks with some interesting exceptions. But what we're interested in pursuing is the idea that, that you can put them together in different ways. So um, this is exciting. Um, it's a new area to focus on since much of science has focused on proteins in the past. Um, but it's also very challenging because compared to proteins where we know a lot about their structure and their function through years and years of biochemistry, molecular biology, structural biology, very little is known about the non-coding genome. Um, but luckily, uh, we can let evolution help us with this problem. And the reason is that if a sequence is doing something in the genome, it's doing something important for your biology or a chimp's biology, then it is uh, disadvantageous to change that sequence. You might alter the function, and in extreme cases lead to a disease um, or some other condition that's not as favorable. So you, it's best not to tinker around with things if they're working. And following that sort of paradigm, what we can do now um, in, in in 2011 is to take all these vertebrate genomes, there's about 50 that have been sequenced today, and the more distantly related ones, things like a mouse or a chicken or a fish, are exceedingly helpful for understanding these regulatory sequences, this non-protein part of the genome. And that's because if a piece of DNA that's a candidate junk DNA, it's just out there, we're not sure what it's doing, um, is actually playing an important role, like turning on a nearby gene during development that helps you um, start to make cardiac myocytes, then it would be a bad idea, evolutionarily speaking, to tinker around with that sequence. And therefore, what happens is that the human version, if we compare it to mouse, chicken, or fish, is actually not that different. It's much more similar than you would expect by chance, given the hundreds of millions of years of evolution that separate these species. And so what we find in comparing uh, more distantly related vertebrates back to humans is that at least 5%, probably more like 10%, maybe even more than that, of our genome is very slow evolving. It's what we call under negative selection or functional constraint. And since we know that less than 2% of the genome is protein coding, that means that most of what's important in our genome actually isn't the proteins. It's these regulatory or non-coding sequences. Now, 
This is exceedingly important, and one of the most important things that's come out of comparative genomics and sequencing different um, genomes is that by looking at these species that are more distantly related, we can actually shed light on and functionally annotate parts of our genome and understand which ones are more important than others in terms of our biology and our health. Then, if we look to a close relative, like the Neanderthal or the chimpanzee, where most of the genome isn't different, most of it's the same, the story's the opposite. We want to look for the parts that are different. So there the genome is nearly identical, and what's interesting are the places where there's structural variations or substitutions at single DNA bases. And by linking these two pieces of information together, we can figure out which of these differences are falling in these elements that are important for gene regulation and therefore for development and normal functioning and health. So um, to look at this at the level of DNA sequence data, I just want to show some quick examples. These are DNA sequence alignments. There's one row for each species. It's human, chimp, mouse, and rat in this example. But as I mentioned, we can line up about 50 vertebrate species now. A column represents a place in the genome where we assume that uh, those DNA bases all descended from a common position in the, com in the ancestor of these four species. And we can look across this alignment and look for differences. So if we compare human and chimp, this is about 40 base pairs long. There's one difference. And since I told you there was one in every 100 base pairs across the genome, this is about what you would expect by chance. You'd expect zero or maybe one in a sequence of this length. Well, it turns out this is just a random place in the genome that I grabbed intentionally. It probably is junk DNA. And therefore, this represents um, what would be happening if there wasn't any functional constraint. This is the background, or what we call a neutral rate of evolution. Interestingly, if you compare mouse and rat, there's four differences. That might come as a surprise to some of you, but it's actually what we would expect, because there's more evolutionary time back to the common ancestor of mouse and rat than there is between human and chimp and our common ancestor. And so the idea there is that if a piece of DNA isn't doing anything important, that it randomly accumulates mutations and that those happen at a fairly constant rate over evolutionary time, over millions of years. And so the amount of sequence difference tells you something about how long ago two sequences had a common ancestor. And Ed talked a little bit about that today in talking about coalescent times between humans and Neanderthals. So the prevalent pattern that we see looking across this alignment is that the two primates are similar to each other and they're different from the two rodents. And that's because there's actually quite a lot of time back to the common ancestor of all four species. So here's another example. Um, I didn't pick this sequence randomly. I picked it very intentionally. It's about the same length, a little bit shorter, and there's no differences at all between the four species. And this suggests that there has been functional constraint, because if you think about a model for DNA sequence evolution that expects things to look like this, then the probability of seeing a sequence like this is actually very close to zero. It's very unlikely that you would get that little change. Maybe not between the human and the chimp. It's actually not that weird to see no difference, and maybe not between the mouse and the rat, but you'd certainly expect the primates to look different from the rodents. And then other forces can actually increase the rate of substitution. So if there's what we call positive or Darwinian selection operating, it's actually advantageous to change the sequence faster than it would under the neutral or background model. And you can also have mutational and other processes that increase rates. So what my lab does is build statistical probabilistic models for how DNA evolves using these principles I just described. And then we use those to search through vertebrate genomes for parts of the genome that are doing unusual or interesting things. So the pattern that I want to emphasize today is looking for something called a human accelerated region. And Ed already introduced this concept. 
The idea is that the sequence is evolving differently in one part of the phylogenetic tree or in one set of species compared to the others. And in particular, we want human to be different and everybody else to be the same. So here's an example of a sequence where chimp is identical to mouse and the rat genome, but there are six positions where human is different from chimp, which I mark with the little green arrows there. And um, this is highly unlikely to occur. We expect human and chimp to be similar to each other, and we expect chimp to be kind of different from the mouse and the rat. So there's two important things about this sequence. One is that the chimp is more similar to the mouse and the rat than you would expect. That tells me this sequence is probably doing something important. And secondly, human is different from chimp. I wouldn't expect that. That suggests that either that function's been lost or altered in some way, potentially, in the human genome. So we use those two concepts, things that are highly similar across the mammals, but different between human and chimp. We take these mathematical models that I described. We perform a statistical test called a likelihood ratio test. We have to be very careful about how we implement this on computers. These calculations are very intensive, and the genome is huge. So if I were to perform this analysis on a desktop or a laptop computer, it would take about 35 years. But using a computer cluster, UCSF, which we have, which has about 1,000 computer nodes stacked up and running in parallel, we can actually do that analysis in an afternoon. So a lot of what you're hearing today um, from me and from other people is only enabled by these new advances in DNA sequencing technology, but also in computing. Computing plays a huge role in enabling, enabling these analyses. So what have we found? In 2006, we published about 200 of these human accelerated regions. We call them HARS for an abbreviation. Now using 50 vertebrate genomes and some improvements in techniques, we've almost tripled that number of elements. And these tend to be fairly short, about 140 base pairs on average um, in length. And as I alluded to earlier in the talk, and, and we might have expected from our 1,000-foot uh, view of the human and the chimp genomes, they're mostly not in proteins. A large percentage are intergenic, meaning they're lying out in between genes. And if they're in a gene region, they're in those intron sequences that aren't the coding parts um, or the UTR. So um, this is exciting. We're pursuing the hypothesis that many of these probably are regulatory elements that control expression of a nearby gene. Um, so to get a handle on what role they might have played in human evolution, it's interesting to see what those genes that, that have a HAR nearby are doing. Excitingly, many of the genes that are, have a HAR nearby are themselves transcription factors. Now, transcription factors are proteins that go and turn on and off other genes. And so that's really interesting because you could change a few base pairs in the human genome you could change a sequence that alters the expression of a transcription factor. You could make more or less of the transcription factor in a particular cell type at a particular time during development. Then that transcription factor goes and turns on and off a whole bunch of other genes. You could imagine having a, a pretty major um, impact on an actual trait, like something like the size of a brain or, or um, how many chambers you have in your heart um, or uh, how well you can metabolize starch. So there's a... a a lot of things that have to happen to go from a genome sequence to a trait or something that we can really latch onto and say, yes, that's different in a set of species or a species that I'm interested in like human. Um, but transcription factors are a powerful way to make a big change like that. So this is exciting that many transcription factors have HARS. And in fact, many of the genes, transcription factor or otherwise, um, are expressed during development, which means that they can play roles in things like how much hair you have, how long your bones are, how the shapes and uh, complexity of your different tissues. 
and many of the genes with a HAR nearby are disease genes, more than half of them, showing that they're really important genes um, and that when you do make changes in them that they do have impacts on um, biology and health. And uh, I don't have time to go into it in great detail, but um, we've already heard today how important segmental duplications are in, in terms of duplicating genes and deleting genes in a genome. And it turns out genes that are involved in these rearrangements, these structural variations, also are enriched for these human accelerated regions. I want to show you a few examples of specific genes where um, we're just starting to think about the biology that might have followed from uh, having a human accelerated region nearby. And I handpicked these because they are um, genes that we know play roles in, in, th in processes, developmental or otherwise, that are different between humans and chimps. And so first uh, example is the FOXP2 gene. It's sometimes called a speech gene because when you have a, a loss in function of the FOXP2 gene in humans, the human can do all the normal cognitive function of language, can perform sign language in the same way that a chimpanzee can, but can't um, vocalize. And uh, the FOXP2 is involved in modulating neural circuits and also controlling fine muscle movements, which are very important in, in the face, especially in terms of being able to do spoken language. The sonic hedgehog gene, several of the Hox genes, and several of the fibroblast growth factors all have HARS, human accelerated regions, nearby. These genes all play really crucial roles in the basic patterning and layout of the embryo in a variety of different parts from the brain to the limbs um, to basic cell proliferation. Another exciting example is chorionic gonadotropin. This is the gene that comes on early in pregnancy. It's essential for normal implantation and maintenance of a pregnancy. And uh, it's interesting that this gene um, came up as having a human accelerated region nearby um, because there are, it's already been demonstrated that the protein coding sequence has changed between humans and non-human primates. And it also looks as though the gene expression has changed in some specific ways. And so we may be getting close to figuring out what actual genetic changes are responsible for those gene expression changes. Um, this is really important because humans actually have a very hard time uh, initiating and maintaining pregnancies. This is one of our traits that's maybe not been improved during human evolution, or maybe it was necessary for things like our bipedalism and our larger brains to have a different type of pregnancy. But if you compare a human to a macaque, for example, um, we actually have a very high rate of miscarriage and of um, failed implantation. And so this is another interesting example. Another sort of tantalizing one is a cluster of three genes that are involved in sexual dimorphism and also harbor a human accelerated region. That's exciting because at least compared to um, gorillas, these humans have much less sexual dimorphism. Another example I want to share with you is what we call HAR1, human accelerated region 1. It's numbered 1 because it was the fastest evolving sequence that I found in this computational scan of the genome. It's about 118 base pairs long, and there's 18 differences between the human and the chimp genome. So that's off scale in terms of how fast evolving it is. Um, we would expect about one under that background or neutral model that I told you about. So it's an order of magnitude fa uh, faster than expected. Um, so HAR1 is a gene, um, meaning that its DNA is made into RNA, but it does not encode a protein. Instead, um, as we heard in the introductory remarks earlier, RNA can actually function on its own. It folds onto itself, forming a structural molecule shown here on the left. 
And interestingly, this RNA gene is expressed in, important, in a very important type of neuron called a Cahel-Retzius neuron in the developing neocortex. So here's the cortical plate, and this is something called the subpeal granular layer. And these cells that express uh, HAR1 also express, as shown down here on the lower right, a protein called relin, which is absolutely essential for the proper formation of the six-layer structure that becomes our cortex. Um, so um, this is exciting. Um, it's tantalizing. We don't know yet exactly what HAR1 does, but the Hausler and von der Hagen and several other labs are trying to figure out its role in human brain development. So. As I alluded to, many of the human accelerated regions um, look like they're regulatory sequences, and one of the big jo um, jobs in my lab right now is to try to figure out which ones are and what genes they're regulating. This is the underlying model. You have a gene that's off. You have a sequence nearby, which we call an enhancer, that can turn a gene on. If a transcription factor comes and binds to it, and that leads to production eventually of the protein from that gene. So here's an example of one, PAR-152. We've shown through a bunch of bioinformatic analyses that HAR-152 harbors a binding site for a transcription factor called PAX6, and it's able to regulate the expression of a gene called neurogenin-2, which is important for the development of the neural tube in the central nervous system. And through experiments of a type we're going to hear even more about in the next talk um, from Jim Noonan, and we've heard a little bit about already, you can make a, take a gene that glows blue in a mouse embryo, and you can stick the human or the chimp enhancer in front of that gene, and you can see where the enhancer functions during development. And what we've done is um, that exact experiment and confirmed, first of all, that HAR-152 is an enhancer and that there are differences between the human and chimp expression patterns. So we're slowly starting to build up a story linking genome to an actual trait or phenotype, hopefully. There are a number of others that we've validated already. We're going to hear, I think, in the next talk about HAR2, which is a limb enhancer. It's also known as human acceler accelerated non-coding sequence one. And my lab's working on HAR34, which is a forebrain expressed uh, enhancer. So what have we learned from looking at human accelerated regions? I want to emphasize that it's not all about the brain. In this Scientific American article that I wrote in 2009, I talk about some interesting sequences that are involved in other parts of our uh, biology, such as uh, our diet and nutrition. Emphasize again, our proteins are nearly identical to chimps, so to understand what makes us human, I think we really need to focus on the non-coding part of the genome and trying to understand better how gene regulation works. This is a very important and massive field of biology that's um, really helping our research to move forward. And finally, a human and a chimp differ at one in every 100 base pairs, but we all differ at one in about every 1,000 base pairs. So in the same way that the Neanderthal isn't that different from the human, we're not that different from each other really either. And so uh, with this new technology everyone's been talking about, we're actually able and will in coming years have hundreds and thousands of human genomes to compare. And these exact same methods will be useful for understanding what parts of certain kinds of people's genomes are different from others, understanding traits that make different people in different parts of the world different from each other, and most importantly, understanding why people at risk for different diseases um, have different elements in them. And I think the, the uh, paradigm of focusing on the non-coding genome will be very useful there, too. We'll find out the genes pretty quickly, and then we're going to have to start this hard work of understanding the regulatory elements. So thanks very much. I wanted, just before closing, to um, make you aware of the fact that Carter has a website that uh, I very much encourage you to visit. And one of the things you will find on the website is the uh, Museum of Comparative Anthropogeny, 
which is an attempt to collect all the information we have, shamelessly anthropocentrically, all the information we have that points to differences between humans as opposed to the other, our, our other closely uh, living relatives. And MOCA is a publicly accessible site that lists domains, 24 of them, ranging from anatomy to social organization, and they include genetics. And genetics is uh, uh, painfully incomplete at this point, but it does list uh, 82 different genes for which we have descriptions of how they differ uniquely in humans. And some of the genes talked about today you will find here. I thought I'd just give you a very, very quick tour, starting alphabetically. So there is a gene called ABO, which codes for a very small sugar difference that defines your ABO blood type. And this, uh, this gene has a summary uh, authored by uh, Naruya Saito here. And you'll see font that indicates how sure he is about the statements, uh, ranging all the way from true to likely to speculative. And this gene is connected to other topics uh, in MOCA. These can be in another domain, such as biochemistry, for example, uh, such as milk composition. So you can hop from the gene for ABO in the domain genetics to the topic of milk composition. Uh, as Katie said, it's not all about the brain. It can also be about the milk, which influences the brain. And from the topic of milk composition, you can find another link to another gene, the CMAH mutation that does the change in sialic acids. And that gets you back to the genetics domain with its now 82 entries, which of course are totally incomplete uh, after just having heard from the thousands of gene expression differences that you have Gilad talked about or the segmental duplications we heard about from Evan Eichler. But I encourage you to visit the Carter website uh, and to not only inform yourself about genetics, but about the next upcoming uh, seminars that you can find there. And would like to end by reminding you that you will not find all the differences. I mean, there's a huge body of work that was published recently on these uniquely human deletions that you will not find there. Um, but we have many there. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed this seminar, and uh, you can actually watch all the past Carta public seminars on this site, uh, UCSD TV. And I hope you will join us for the next seminars uh, uh, in October, December, and March. And I'll end by thanking our sponsors, the Mathers Foundation and Annette Merle-Smith as well as all the speakers uh, who I thank very much for making a, a very visible effort of translating genetics for non-genetics aficionados. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.